It was a humid but mild day in Nashville when I met up with Tony Caldwell to record this episode. We were just a few miles from my alma mater, Trevecca Nazarene University, a, as they have branded it, Christian University in the heart of Nashville. Tony had just accepted an adjunct professorship at the university, making the world feel pretty small. I couldn't help reflecting on my time on that campus almost 20 years before and how much the world has changed, how much I have changed. Aside from getting an iPhone and losing my hair over those two decades, it was clear that our society was in a new place and it requires bold, courageous change. Tony took the time to speak with me from his experience as a social worker and therapist on how we can make the world a little more connected and a human place to live. I'm Graham High, and this a straight white guy listening. Can you tell me your journey on how you got to this calling that you have? So I grew up being the the white kid that was my age in, in a black marginalized neighborhood, and I saw sort of firsthand what we now call intersectionality sort of play out on a on a daily basis. And so I saw poverty and gender and um, socioeconomic status and, you know, the way school systems are arranged and, and just all these colliding factors sort of play out. And I was participating in most of those, you know, just like all of my peers, except for the fact that I was white. And that's a, a huge um, difference when you start looking at the realities of, of what privilege is and, and, you know, sort of the a lot of the conversations around what is privilege or, you know, I, you know, a lot of people uh, sometimes say, well, I grew up, you know, in difficult situations or I have tons of student loan debt or all these things, you know, but I always have to come back to, but skin color wasn't one of the factors that was working against you, you know? Right. So I, I don't think it's a coincidence that I'm one of the few people from the neighborhood that sort of made it. Mm-hmm. Uh, for lack of a better word, um, who's didn't end up in prison, probation, on parole, or, or somehow stunted by a, a lot of the factors, you know, not able to fully bloom mm-hmm. uh, because of just the the intensity of all these colliding factors and how they the cumulative effect just really weighs down the human spirit. Right. So, yeah. so you're saying you kind of came out of a place where you were able to perceive maybe not in the moment, but later, mm-hmm. your whiteness as something that helped you Absolutely. get up and out of that situation. Absolutely, yeah. So um, give a short story for context. Uh, the view outside of my bedroom window growing up was a Confederate statue and a mm-hmm. Confederate flag, and it, it started as sort of an unknown soldier-type right. monument, but a whole cemetery popped up around it. And so I'm on the east side, and it's the white side of the cemetery, and it's, it's pretty fancy. So my friend um, that I grew up with, he lives around, you know, sort of a circular uh, cemetery. Mm-hmm. He lives around on the other side, and his view was the black side of the cemetery. So there's, you know, shallow graves that are, mm-hmm. you know, the ground's uneven, it's not kept up. There's right. uh, homemade tombstones with, you know, I guess sticks or fingers, you know, mm-hmm. uh, were used for writing in wet concrete. And it, it just gave this image, this perfectly ugly image of, his experience and my experience of the same neighborhood, the same um, county, the same city, the same state, the same world. Right. Yeah. That that image just was um, more than symbolic. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was literally um, this this segregation of the dead was the perfect right. image for the segregation of the living. Right. Yeah. And so later in life, when I when I was first uh, got into mental health. I was doing some transitional counseling for federal for the federal prisons. Mm-hmm. It was mostly people that had been involved in drug sales coming back into society from prison. And so my old friend and neighbor uh, ended up being one of my clients. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so he was transitioning in. And so we I realized we we had crossed the threshold into a new conversation when he walked into my office. You uh-huh. know, when he literally came through that threshold into the office, we had the kinds of conversations we weren't really conscious enough to have as children mm-hmm. about the cemetery 
and how symbolic it was for his experience and my experience of the same place and then our differing experiences of the school system and he never asked for pity he never um, blamed or you know there was none of this victim mentality but I could see you mm -hmm. know looking back um, in hearing his words and how they matched up with with what I what I could recall mm -hmm. growing up um, you know, one thing that I recall is we would all play outside and play basketball and ride bikes and all that, but we would never cross those thresholds into one another's houses. It was just this unspoken thing of oh wow discomfort. And and um, so you I, would kind of play in the street uh, yeah. in between the yeah yeah. So I grew up on Martin Luther King Drive in in a little town called Verona, and so it's uh, it's very much a marginalized part of town, and really the whole the whole little city or little town has has become even more marginalized as um, you know people that um, are sort of oppressed um, socioeconomically have been pushed out of the mm. larger town into the into that suburb. Right, and um, and so all the social uh, ills that happen when you have people who are suffering um, in large number and have limited access to, you know, what in sociology is called the the sustaining system. Mm. You know, so what can you explain yeah, what that is? Yeah. So there's the concept of the nurturing system, which is your your parents, your siblings, your extended family, your neighborhood. You know, and it, it kind of moves out till, you know, you get to maybe the school system. And at some point it switches over um, when you get into the larger systems like the job market and um, school system and um, applying for college and all these other systemic, you know, dealing with uh, the court system and um, policing and all these other systemic structures. And that's supposed to be a sustaining system. Mm. to where our best interest is still right. held in mind by that larger system and uh, and it works for everyone equally, mm -hmm. you know. And, and, you know, the fact is that just doesn't happen in so many cases. And I've learned a lot about how just one one person in a system can create a sick system. You know, okay. it could be that not a whole um, legal system in a certain county is corrupt, but one judge can really do a lot to harm people mm -hmm. if right. there's bias there. Part of what I've done for the last 20 years and what I hope to do and until I, you know, can't right. <laughs> any longer is, is to be a part of the solution. And, mm -hmm. and, and it's real easy for that to turn into something like a white savior complex. Right. Uh, but I don't, through my experience thus far in life, you know, I, it could be different day, next week, but I don't believe in the concept of white guilt. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's sort of a just a pseudo diagnosis that's based in ignorance or hatred or something. Mm -hmm. But but so the way I see it is is if if I feel compassion or grief or empathy or concern, and that's pathologized into some kind of you know uh, fake diagnosis of. of white guilt, mm -hmm. then if you really just take the white off of all that, it's just basic human connection. Okay. Right. Yeah. It's just basic. It's, you know, it's not white concern. It's concern. It's not white empathy. It's empathy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not white compassion. It's compassion. And so it, I think it breaks down our humanity to, to use that terminology. So to me, a more appropriate definition of white guilt would be when we become defensive it's like in any other relationship, guilt ends up making it about me, right? Yeah, and my feelings, mm -hmm. and uh, and it sort of defeats the whole purpose of, of trying to, you know, be a part of a solution mm -hmm. or, or trying to to find ways to not participate in things that uh, that we might be unaware of or addicted to, because mm -hmm. uh, you, know, you know, privilege can be pretty addicting, right? Yeah, yeah. and. Um, you know, sometimes when people say, well, where's my privilege? I'll say, well, you know, look at the things you wouldn't want to let go of or uh, how imagine how it would feel if complete equality were were the norm. Mm -hmm. And what would you feel like you would have lost? At the end of the day, it's not about guilt mm -hmm. and it's not about anything negative. It's all it's all constructive. It's all mm -hmm. about let's let's pull each other up. Right. You know, I can tell you a story from my own childhood about you know, privilege works in a lot of different ways, not just around skin color. But so, you know, my friend and I that I talked about, uh, 
that had gone to prison that you know we mm-hmm. grew up together. Um, so we had a seventh grade teacher, uh, Miss Witherspoon, mm-hmm. and she was she was a black female, and she was very much a maternal figure to a lot of us, and, and very much grew us in a lot of ways. And so I can remember being in seventh grade, sitting at the at the school lunchroom table. And, you know, I'm, I'm very primitive and stunted in a lot of ways <laughs> at, at that age, just, you know, because of a lot of dynamics around me um, and in me. But uh, so I was monkey gripping my my fork. OK. And and mouth breathing. Uh huh. Yeah. So there was right. a, there were things I didn't know that I needed to know. Right. And she um, she looked at me. and She was like, I need you to to pay attention to me and listen to me, and and I need you to remember everything I'm about to tell you. And I'm like, okay, Whoa, this yeah. is intense because uh-huh. this is someone like I revered. You know, uh-huh. like the last thing I would want to do is upset her. You know, so I'm like, okay, what is this about? <laughs> yeah. And she says, as long as you hold your fork like that and breathe like that, no one else will ever know that you're brilliant and talented, and all these, you wow. know, and it yeah. just went on and with a few other um, things. And, and she said, so, and if they don't know, you will forget. Mm. Wow, that's a powerful second half yeah. to that, too. Yeah, she used her privilege to lift me up, you know, in the sense of, uh, of love that was going in both directions. Mm-hmm. Because uh, at the time, I didn't realize it because I'm a kid, mm-hmm. you know, but she was facing a lot of sexism and racism and being held back from advancement opportunities and right. things like that. And so she was lifting me up higher than she was allowed to go. Mm-hmm. And that was at the hands of people that looked like me. Yeah. And so her, her love was bigger than all of it. And, and so that, that's one of the things that I, I think I carry I've carried with me every day since mm-hmm. in a lot of ways when it comes to empowering other people because I know what it feels like to be on the receiving end of that and there's something about that that makes you want to share it. Do you mind asking like, or me asking you uh, why you went into this field specifically, like dealing, mm-hmm. helping people with mental health and... Yeah. Uh, was it a calling or was it something that you've always known? Or? Yeah. Yeah. So um, when I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, uh, my wife uh, introduced me to a couple that had mentored her for several years. And we all went to dinner and I was describing sort of where I was spiritually and, you know, uh, where I was as far as my belief system. And, and he said, um, uh, John, he said, um, you should check out social work. It sounds like that you know, lines up well with your convictions and your uh, just sort of general state of being in the world, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I did, and I, I read the Code of Ethics, and I was like, this this does line up. You know, I agree with everything about this. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that, that became a way for uh, my calling to unfold. I think in a way I would consider my calling to be larger than just the field of mental health or social work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very much a spiritual thing for me as well. The experience of growing up watching so much suffering and experiencing a lot of suffering myself, you know. So within me, within my family, within the community I grew up in, and just the, the world as a whole, mm-hmm. you know. Um, there, was a, there was a question on the, you know, at the beginning of, well, should I go into nursing or medicine? Or what should I do, you know, mm-hmm. to, to be of help in the world? And it's uh, that sort of place where, where what we refer to as the mental and what we refer to as the spiritual, where they meet, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's just, that's, that's where I always am anyway. Mm-hmm. Like I, that's where I'm all, that's where I always am emotionally and mentally. I'm always in that place. So I might as well find a line of work mm-hmm. where I can be in that place. Right. Yeah. All day, every day. And, um, uh, yeah, I wouldn't trade it for anything, but I think where it all fits together is it's all, um, meant to address human suffering and to try to empower people who are suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the kind of the twofold of what you're saying is like, you know, there is human suffering right. in the world, and then there is a way that we can try to empower each other right. beyond that suffering. Right. And I think that's kind of like what we try to do on this podcast in a very small way is like, let's mm-hmm. acknowledge the suffering that's in the world and right. how can we address it and be honest about it. Right. You know, there's the 
I don't know if you've heard the song by Jason Isbell, uh, White Man's World. You know, I'm a white man living in a white man's world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so he, he, with each verse, he sort of takes it from another angle. But, but there is a sense that the structures that we all live within were created by white people for white people. Mm-hmm. And that's still the case, even though maybe we've evolved in some ways. Uh, that those structures are still not working equally for everyone, um, even if that's not the intent or it's not on paper anywhere. It's still happening, just because things are functioning as they were designed to. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, the reality of how things play out have has not caught up with what we say our intent is mm-hmm. at this point helping people um, sort of wake up and see certain things that they've observed all their lives but never really been fully aware of or conscious of is sort of a hard sell. Yeah. You know, I know I face the the criticism a lot of, I just have what's usually referred to as some, some variation of uh, this is a liberal agenda. Mm-hmm. You know, and, um, you know, if, if that's, if, if that's the perception, then, then, that's going to be how I'm heard and how I'm responded to or reacted to or treated. It sort of is an end of a conversation uh, before right. it even starts. Um, so let me just say it as sort of a, I'm not comfortable with blanket statements, but this is about as close as I can get without making one. Um, bodies have been objectified, mm-hmm. um, you know, through slavery. And when uh, the belief system of a collective especially within the primary religious tradition in that collective, can find a way to make that okay, right? Uh, yeah. then, then something, something was broken there, mm-hmm. right? And so bodies were objectified there. So of course there's not outrage when unarmed black men are shot. Those mm-hmm. bodies were objectified before they were even born. Mm-hmm. You know, um, of course it's easier to hate on a black woman that's living on uh, a government check uh, and has multiple children than it is a white woman in the same situation. Right. Uh, even though there are more white women in that situation in our state than black women. Right. But the stereotype is black because she was objectified before she was born. Mm-hmm. Her children were objectified before she was born. Um, the bodies of women have been objectified in, in lots of ways historically, you know, in, in the past, uh, you know, the, the major conversations in our um, political climate, just not not just now, but historically for a very long time, is you know when you start talking about the right to choose and abortion and, and that whole uh, conversation, uh, women get very much objectified in that conversation, you know. So, you know, to me, intersectionality means when you're that that black woman, and you're black and female and you're in poverty, then, then there's three strikes right there. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's how intersectionality works. And that's where you have three levels of being objectified or three levels of oppression or three levels of disconnect from that larger sustaining system. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that that is, it, that's the opposite of what we say we are as a country. Right. But then again, those documents were written by and for white people. Mm-hmm. And we have to own that and face that. I mean, that's not, that, that shouldn't make anyone bristle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's just naming a difficult truth. Uh, I don't think there's anything to defend there or anything to argue about there. It's just either that's a true statement or it's not. Right. And if, if uh, and either we're still living to some extent as if that's true or we're not, you know. And, um, I don't know. I just think of all the energy we spend arguing when we could, if we could just say, okay, this is a problem, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think like in a family, like if my wife or my son or I have, have an issue, I consider that a family problem, you know? So if, if, if I'm having a problem that is systemic because I'm important in that system mm-hmm. and it becomes a family problem. And then to some extent we have to own one another's brokenness. That's part of the arrangement, right? Right. Um, not in an unhealthy way or a way that's harmful or abusive, um, but, but as part of our dedication to one another. Right. We take ownership of one another's brokenness in some way. And if we could just do that in this country around marginalized neighborhoods and marginalized individuals and say, you know what, that's not your brokenness, that's our brokenness. 
Yeah. And 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 not in a patronizing way, and not in a way that's uh, sort of a, a, a hand down, um, but just more in a spirit of equality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's so many ways that could look. I know there's a question: well, What would that look like? And is the government responsible mm-hmm. for that? Or, mm-hmm. um, you know, th- those are all great questions. But unless we as individuals want to do that, um, it's not going to happen. Oh, uh, right. You know, whether it's through something that's formally drawn up and implemented federally or at a state level or just through small groups of concerned citizens or whatever it may be. Um, but, but yeah, I, I've grown up in a state where, um, you know, leadership has been almost exclusively white mm-hmm. and, uh, and conservative and religious and, um, you know, um, have had at least those three layers of privilege Mm-hmm. You know, and male, so four. Right. Yeah, but but it does set up the dynamic where there's this feeling that the standard standard image bearer of God is a straight white Christian conservative male, mm-hmm. and everything should be um, really measured according to that standard. Right. And and I don't. No one says that out loud. It's not on paper anywhere. <laughs> right. But it, there's a felt sense mm-hmm. that that's true. I mean, you kind of brought it up earlier where you could dismiss some of these topics you're talking about as like the liberal agenda. Mm-hmm. And, you know, growing up in the South myself, I definitely felt that growing up and I perceived mm-hmm. that growing up like, oh, just a bunch of liberals yeah. out there. And it's kind of easy to other any of these difficult conversations. Right. And people um, put up walls when, when they can sense an agenda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and so yeah, I I feel that very much. I don't I don't like agendas, no matter where they're coming from. Right. You know, and and I don't like boxes, and I don't like uh, even just saying black people or gay people or straight people. Mm-hmm. That, that, even that, it, mm-hmm. it's it's just it's uh, I'm uncomfortable with all of it. We have very real limits with our language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, you know, I've I've worn the projections uh, of. Um, white people who don't like some of the things that I say mm-hmm. or, or stand for or try to do. Um, and also some of the projections of uh, some justified anger uh, among someone of color, you know, because I'm white. And, mm-hmm. and in both cases, I try to uh, check myself for what is my role in this and take responsibility for whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then t- to really pay attention to what's going on inside of me and Am I reactive, and if so, why? Mm-hmm. And uh, what truth might there be to what's being said, or what? What? How might this be um, an invitation to maybe awaken a little more, um, mm-hmm. and also not own too much of something that doesn't belong to me? Right. If someone's saying um, that I have a liberal agenda, mm-hmm. you know. If I can just hold that projection instead of react to it or respond to it or own it or not own it or whatever and just mm-hmm. let it be there. Just say, okay, they're the projector and I'm the screen. Mm-hmm. And let me just be a screen for a while mm-hmm. and not try to make this go away or right. um, so change the narrative in some way and just, just let it be there, mm-hmm. not fight it. Right. Um, and so it's not it's not owning it or saying that it's true. It's just not participating in, you know... Um, not giving it power, mm-hmm. the power to transform me if I need to be internally, but not power to to uh, make me reactive in some way. Right. Yeah. I try not to harden, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, because God knows I've done that before, and and any anything I'm trying to do that's productive um, becomes non-productive or damaging, or when I'm coming from my own emotion, then my work's about me instead of about someone else mm-hmm. um, and um, man, it, it, it becomes a, a huge mess. I am always interested in mm-hmm. how white people can talk to other white people right. about these things because right. we're two white men. Right. You don't want to be the self-righteous guy that's shaking right. his finger, right? but you know, we want to be able to have yeah. conversations with people that are like us, have right. similar experiences. So yeah. Yeah. For me that, um, you know, looks like self-disclosure. Mm-hmm. And and 
trying to, at least in this area, practice some radical humility, mm-hmm. you know, that um, I don't have it all figured out. I never will. My right. hope is to be a part of the solution and part of a corrective narrative more than being a part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And the, and also acknowledging that there are some ways that I'm part of the problem I haven't been willing to let go of yet. Right. You know, and I have to own that my own racism is there. Mm-hmm. You know, I can talk, I talk about racism every day mm-hmm. and I still have racist parts of me. Right. You know, and, and so naming that and owning that, I think, it, I hope to model that well, that just a comfort level with it. Well, of course that's true. Mm-hmm. I heard this, saw this, internalized this, ingested this. It's like in the air. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like saying that I'm not racist would be like saying I've never had a, a communicable disease. Mm-hmm. I never had chicken pox. I never had, right. of course I did, you know? And of course it's a part of me now. And, uh, and of course I have to keep check on that. And part of my own health, you know, whether it's physically, mentally, spiritually, whatever, is, is to, to be honest with myself. And so, like, when I'm teaching a class and I want to give an example of what that looks like, I'll say, you know, I was at the car wash a few days ago, and there was a guy cleaning out his car, and he had a holster with a gun, and he was he was a black guy. And so if it were a white guy, my stereotype would be, oh, he has a cowboy complex. He wants to, there to be a problem he can solve and be a hero. Mm-hmm. That's my negative projection, right? right. Who knows why he had a gun? Mm-hmm. With the black guy, what what is my assumption? Who's after him or he sells drugs? Right. Right? Mm-hmm. And so those are the thoughts that pop into my mind, not thoughts that I chose or sat down and said, let me figure this out. Mm-hmm. Just boom. Mm-hmm. They, there they are. You know? Right. And so I have to own that. Mm-hmm. This, this phenomenon just happened inside of me, and if I don't own it, it is a part of me. If I own it as this thing that... It, it, happens in me and and process it and put it where it belongs then then great but if i don't if that's unchecked then that's this that's like that's a muscle i'm not working mm-hmm. you know right. and so it's a lack of self-care it's a lack of um responsibility for the to the collective it's it's um it would be really bad um parenting Mm-hmm. bad modeling it, it, you know there's so many ways that um, my responsibility is not just to me but to people I care about and that to radiate out to the larger world and um, so to not um, not take ownership that those kinds of phenomena can happen inside of me mm-hmm. is just completely irresponsible on every level really right yeah and and as someone you know I, I'm from a Christian background so what that means to me is that if if I don't own that, I'm not my brother's keeper. Mm. If I don't own that, then I'm, um, you know, I'm in need of repentance, if you will. Um, you know, the way that we process information is 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 based on past experience and not just personal experience, but the narratives that we've heard. You know, mm-hmm. the big scary black guy or the 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 lone wolf weird white guy or what you know right. what I mean? Like like we we. We're taking, we're socializing each other all day, every day, right? From the time we're born until we die, mm-hmm. and uh, that cumulative effect. I mean, it, it's the difference between who we really are and what we've become. I mean, I think anxiety is kind of like a, and we don't have to diagnose the yeah, age necessarily, right. but it does seem like we all deal with anxiety as yeah. writ large. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, anxiety is the norm. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, um, um, a diagnosable amount that's causing, you know, wreaking havoc on our lives uh, is, a, is another thing. But mm-hmm. it really, if you, if you look at all the anxiety disorders that are possible, you know, all the options and categories, diagnostically, I mean... Man, the majority of us are ain't pretty anxious. Mm-hmm. You know, when you when you add all those numbers up, yeah. um, there. I mean, anxiety is the norm, and you know, even even positive stress is stress. Mm-hmm. So we're we're all stressed and anxious, right? Um, yeah, that's absolutely the norm. And I don't mean that to minimize someone who's suffering from an extreme amount. 
of course, yeah, of anxiety. But uh, but I, I would say we're all underneath, uh, for the most part, um, uh, a, a low to mid grade level of anxiety, mm-hmm. um, and that's always uh, subject to what happens when you add one more or two more stressors, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and so yeah, I, I think. I think finding some compassion for ourselves and others in, in, in how much uh, suffering we endure. Mm-hmm. And really, the you know, I'm becoming to, to see most people have some level of trauma mm-hmm. as well. And that we're, uh, when we expand what we mean by trauma to mean something more than, than what happened in a war zone or what happened in a car wreck, and we look at the cumulative effects of smaller traumas mm. and microaggressions and things that happen over a lifetime, those little deposits can add up, mm-hmm. um, and and I think there's a lot of what we call cumulative or complex trauma. I think uh, sometimes I get the question, well, what about black on black crime? Mm-hmm. You know, that seems to always be someone's question. I've never heard anyone ask, what about white on white crime? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's another way you see how these frames work, you right? Know? Uh, but I don't. I, I think it's pretty easy to see when you have an accumulation of people who are suffering, then there's going to be an uptick in crime and violence. And, you know, when there's a limited amount of resources, it doesn't matter the race or the gender or the decade. Of course, there's violence where there's tons of suffering that's been there for generations and a lack of opportunity and, um, you know, generational patterns that have started in the context of being marginalized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, those right. are all symptoms. And so I don't mean to minimize the loss of a life and say, well, that's just what happens because there's symptoms. I don't mean it like that, but mm-hmm. I mean, the violence is symptomatic of a deeper suffering. Right. Blame is easy. You know, you can discharge the negative emotion and and say that or those people or, you know, and and, and that's a split, you know, so psychologically... That's a split, and I think the splits we see, whether it's uh, redlining or busing or zoning or all these ways that we're physically separated, mass incarceration of black men, um, all these ways that we end up split out here, it's because we're already split in here. And so Mm -hmm. the splits in us are creating the splits between us. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where, you know, with to to kind of flip, um, change the wording for Uncle Ben from Spider-Man, you know, mm-hmm. with great privilege comes great responsibility, mm-hmm. you know. And so whiteness as an identity to me is um, is the extreme, uh, you know, that's, there, there's humanity and then there's whiteness, you know. And you could, you could replace whiteness with any other word you want to that is extreme and says my group is superior to everyone else. But it's, it's the opposite of humanity. It's the opposite of connection. Mm-hmm. And just psychologically speaking, it's extremely unhealthy. I mean, there's just all this splitting and dualism and even infighting within parties. And it's just, it's a, it's, it's a, really a catastrophe. I mean, there, there's no, uh, you just look at the effects that it has, you know, and, and you see, I mean, you just see the lack of health there. Mm-hmm. And so that's not a partisan statement. It's just an objective, I mean, it's just anyone can see it. Right. You know, that there's, I don't think anyone would fight you on that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and uh, I had a, um, a young black man at a college I was speaking at say, why don't more white people say the things you're saying? And I said, well, because the price is belonging. Mm-hmm. Thanksgiving feels different. Christmas yeah. feels different. Um, and there is a loneliness to it. There's, there's, you have to find, you know, if, if this disrupts your belonging in your family of origin or your community or your church or whatever, I'm not saying that you don't face that, but I'm also saying it's really not easy. Yeah. And um, so I, I feel the sense of, well, how dare I complain about that, you know, when I, I see the effects of racism. Right. And so I don't complain about that, but I will be honest that it's not easy. Yeah, it's not. But yeah. We still need to acknowledge it. But, Absolutely, yeah. But, I'm not uh, going to whine about it, but <laughs> I'm going to be honest yeah. that, uh, that the loss of connection and relationship to people that you love and the uh, the breakdown over where 
paradigms win over relationship mm -hmm. um, is tragic. And, you know, Carl Jung said that the, the greatest burden on the child is the unlived life of their parent. Mm. And that could be true in 50,000 different ways. But I think right. when it comes to, um, to, to race in America, every generation is carrying the undealt with mm. uh, thoughts and feelings and attitudes and patterns and defense mechanisms and denial. I mean, it's everything that's been done or not done. Mm -hmm. um, like we're carrying that. Yeah, there is like a larger psychological load that we're all kind of carrying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Body. And, you know, you could call it karma. You could call it, you know, um, sort of a psychological debt that we're carrying or whatever. Uh, but but all it is, you know, it happens in every family in, in uh, multiple ways, whether it's through addictions or um, patterns of communication. But we, we, uh, we're carrying, you know, the unfinished business of our parents. We all are. You know, and then when we when we're in collectives, you know, whether it's a family or a community or whatever, we're carrying that. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, that's part of like what I've studied a lot is what's called transgenerational or intergenerational trauma among um, Black Americans in the South, uh, because when you have all these colliding factors over 400 years it's still here, you know, mm -hmm. even in the field of epigenetics, you can see where we're being altered by the stress of our predecessors right. and how we still carry that in us. Um, mm -hmm. And so um, there, our healing is mutual. It's all bound together. I mean, Dr. King said it, you know, that our, our healing is, is we're absolutely just in it together, mm -hmm. you know? And so the, the healing of, um, the splits in the white psyche or the psyche of many of us white people and a lot of the splits from the harm and the dehumanization and the internalized racism of black people, it's also bound together. We can't heal without one another mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah. Um, I think in some ways for, for healing, maybe there, there's ways that some of us that are white should probably just get out of the way. You know, so I'm not saying that the the healing of anyone of color is dependent upon white people, but but it's so interconnected as a human family mm -hmm. that um, you know families use families usually don't heal unless everyone in in the unit is in on the healing. Right. You yeah. know, it can't be just that dad stopped drinking. It's got to be that dad stopped drinking and mom stopped enabling and mm -hmm. the child stopped being scared and the other one stopped acting out. And right. it's this whole mutual, it's, it's all bound together, you know. I just think if our, the circle of our concern, if it could grow bigger, for each person, where it's not just me and my family, or me and my tribe, mm -hmm. or me and my, you know, religion or denomination, but it could it could just expand out more, right? You know, just one level more, right? You know? <laughs> just bump up that circle just a little, <laughs> right? Right? Yeah, um, yeah. So that that you know, whatever whatever circle we have where we fit all our major concerns into it, mm -hmm. it's usually, you know family and friends, you mm -hmm. know, or maybe some aspect of community. But if it could just radiate out a little more, there would be a lot of places where those overlap, mm -hmm. you know. And, yeah. and so each person's circle starts overlapping, and before long, you're, you're connected in a much greater way. Right. And, uh, you know, we're a global society, where whether we want to be or not. Mm -hmm. So that's international, not just as a nation. Mm -hmm. But uh, th there's so much splitting that has happened through the years, and right now it's just that the dehumanizing of one another. And I think one of the one of the places that I, I see us getting stuck is where, if we consider, um, if we consider care for children separated from their families at the border as the uh, well, if you care about that, it's, it's just a liberal thing. Then what about? I know there's some conservative people that care about those children mm -hmm. in that situation. I know some of them. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Or if uh, if that makes you a Democrat, well, what about people who just feel that out of their faith tradition? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so all these splits that happen, um, right. they're 
one of the most uh, damaging things about them is they're, uh, to some extent, they're not even real. Mm. You know, but but an imagined paradigms as dangerous as a real one. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if we if I dream up some idea about who someone is, I could hurt them as much as if I I knew a reality of who they are and treating them poorly because I don't like them for who they really are. Right. You know, does that make sense? I don't know if I worded that correctly or not, but I think I follow. So, my storyline about who somebody is can make me treat them. Um, really poorly, right. even if it doesn't fit. Because they're an idea of a person rather than a living, yeah. breathing. Yeah, and, and I can give you an example of how I fight that um, internally. I've grown up in a context where a lot of white conservative Christian people have done a whole lot of harm and have a whole lot of hard-heartedness and indifference to the suffering of, of black and brown people and gay people um, and have... Um, propped up politicians and supported um, policies that hurt people of color, poor people, and gay people. And if I take the way that that, the pain of that manifest as anger in me, I'm going to um, be harmful Mm. in some way, you know? And so I have to fight that because when I when I uh, see someone that fits in that box, I automatically make assumptions, mm-hmm. and so then I'm I'm participating in the same thing. Right. You know, this is this is why most people avoid this work. Right. And why most people avoid these conversations because it does seem absolutely impossible, and you just give up. You yeah. Know? So, trying to model not giving up and and trying to stay constructive and really just, I think for me in the context I live in. Part of what I hope I model is is just like in anything else, how to get it wrong and then do the best you can to fix it and keep going, mm-hmm. you know, because I am imperfect. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think there's something about learning as you go publicly uh-huh. that uh, can hopefully keep you humble. It'll definitely keep you humiliated, you know. Yeah. And uh, showing some grace while you're doing it will be like, well, yeah. this guy. Yeah. If you're able to grow and learn and make it not look completely painful or humiliating, but do yeah. it with grace. And I think people can see that and yeah. respond to it. Yeah. But I think, you know, we're socializing each other. And I think the more we throw ourselves out there and get uncomfortable and get it wrong and sort of be the first one maybe in our family or community or congregation or whatever to do that, we're, we're also granting permission to be sloppy and get it wrong and to learn and figure it out and fail. And, um, I think if if there's something subversive and healing we could do is just to to be willing to take a fall. Mm-hmm. You know, that's part of what I'm learning mm-hmm. at this point is, is that the times I've failed have taught me a lot and I think um, unintentionally helped some other people mm-hmm. in some ways, you know, and uh, the fear of getting it wrong holds us back from so much. I don't like, again, I don't like blanket statements, but in general, in my experience, um, African Americans handle grief better than white Americans. Mm. If you look at the the traditional, like what I've seen of um, um, black funerals and white funerals, Mm -hmm. and if you just sit in it and get the feel, you know, like I know it's different for every family, but in right. general, uh, it, a lot of times for white families, it is die on Friday, buried on Sunday, go back to work on Monday, mm-hmm. act like everything's fine. Two weeks later, you can't function. And right. there's a delayed grief. There's a vo- an avoidance of grief. Mm-hmm. And then when it hits two weeks later and everybody else is back to normal and you can't function and you're isolated, you mm-hmm. know, like that, that's some variation of that happens so much. Yeah. And then in black families, you'll see more of, a, of an extended time of grief and waiting for family and friends to come in from out of town. Mm-hmm. And there's expression of emotion across the spectrum of emotion, you know, positive, mm-hmm. I mean, laughter and tears and mourning and celebration and uh, just a, a release. Mm-hmm. Um and, and that's so incredibly healthy. Mm-hmm. And so, of, of course, um, so sometimes white Americans, we may have trouble uh, mourning things that happen to the other because we, we're not even good at handling things that hurt us. Right, yeah. <laughs> and our own families and children and 
spouse, you know, like, yeah, yeah. No, I've never thought about that before. Yeah, that if we can't deal with our own grief well, how are we going to deal with the grief of our neighbor well? Yeah. Yeah. There is a certain kind of hardness in it, like where there is something that's held up as being tough, uh, kind of just keeping it together, doing your mm-hmm. thing. And, you know, yeah. I think that's part of being a, a man as well. Yeah. But it is funny that the older I get, the more life I live, the more I find the actual power right. in feeling right. something, even discomfort, like we've talked about. Right. That, you know, whatever it is, if if you feel something, there's real power mm-hmm. in experiencing it and yeah. wisdom. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, if we don't have that within our lives and our families, and right. then we're missing out yeah. on something that life's trying to give us. Mm-hmm. You know, Brian Stevenson says the one of the w- primary ways that um, that trauma around issues of race and slavery and lynching and all that shows up f- for white people is in the form of indifference, mm. just to sh- kind of shut down to it all. Right. And and I think some of that goes back to what I was talking about earlier about the socialization of boys. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't stop when we hit twelve or eighteen. I mean, it keeps going. We're, we're constantly mm-hmm. sort of told who we are and who to be and how to, you know, we, we sort of inherit uh, this idea of how we're supposed to be and mm-hmm. work hard and then you get to retirement and you're depressed and empty. And yeah. uh, it's, there's no, um, I don't think there's any coincidence that some of the highest suicide and addiction rates in the nation are, are elderly white men, mm. you know, because I, th- I think there's some some parts of us that have been taken from us and it's part of, why a lot of destruction comes into the world through us because there's destruction inside of us and it mm-hmm. comes out, you know. Right. But I think destruction to ourselves radiates out to how we how we relate to ourselves informs how we relate to others for every human, mm-hmm. you know. But there's particular ways that we've been socialized as as white men for that to to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think disowning our own uh, what would be called our feminine aspects like feeling and emotion and things that we just say, well, that's that's for the the female gender to mm-hmm. sort of embody. You right. know, that that doesn't apply to us. Uh, that's been taught, and, there, and there's been so many um, reinforcements, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and on so many levels, and even people who are well-intentioned and well-meaning teaching us that. And uh, how can we feel for others when we can't even feel for ourselves? Right. You know. Yeah. Like literally can't. Feel, sort of yeah. emotionally constipated, <laughs> right. you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we just need to make it safer for one another, you know, safer to just kind of show back up. And um, when we're when we're when we're stressed, we're traumatized. We're we're just we just have we're all carrying a lot, and to be able to actually play a little bit every now and then, and for that part of us that we get disconnected from to actually show back up every now and then, if we could help create that for one another, mm-hmm. um, that may be one of the best things we can do for one another. Right. Our our trauma histories and our hardships do make us who we are, but we also, I don't know a, a single person who got there alone without some support, mm-hmm. you know, right. or without a Miss Witherspoon or somebody like that, mm-hmm. you know, in their life. Um, I mean, I just don't think it's possible. You can't go from infancy to you know, 21 without some kind of support, <laughs> right? even if it wasn't perfect, you mm-hmm. know? So yeah, I think gratitude goes a long way. And uh, I think telling our stories, you know, because I've never been in a context that I can remember where um, someone told their story and someone didn't, wasn't affected or moved or, or opened up and told their story. And, and I mean, that's, that's part of what's beautiful about what you're doing. You mm-hmm. know, you're encouraging that to happen more and more, and uh, I mean, when when two or three stories turn into two hundred or three thousand, or you know, mm-hmm. um, that's that's huge. I right? Mean, yeah. I mean, that's part of that circles of concern that o- end up overlapping. You mm-hmm. know, and where I care about the widow down the street, and she cares about the kid who wore the same schools clothes to school, walking by her house three days in a row, and he gives half of his sandwich to his buddy. You know, or sits with the kid that's alone or, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, that thing. It, right. Yeah, where we, we rehumanize one another. Mm-hmm. I mean, because, I mean, at this point, we've all been objectified in some way. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the, 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 the white guy thing, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, we're carrying, that's an objectification right. know, mm-hmm. in its own way. Um, but yeah, I mean, rehumanizing one another. I mean, I don't think of any, I can't think of anything more, can't think of a better use of our time that we have left on earth, you know, so try to be a part of that. Hear more of Tony on his podcast, Voices of Wisdom, available where you listen to podcasts. Follow him on Twitter at Tony underscore Caldwell underscore. For other episodes of Straight White Guy Listening, please visit straightwhiteguylistening.com or follow us at SWG Listening on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And remember to subscribe, like, and review while you're there. Straight White Guy Listening is created and produced by Graham High and Rebecca Breithaupt. Special thanks to Tony Caldwell for taking the time to speak with us. The song you're hearing in the background is White Man's World by Jason Isbell. The rest of the music in this episode was written by Daniel Birch from the Free Music Archive. Thanks for listening.